Hey, thanks for tuning into The Scoop. I hope you and your family are safe during these unprecedented times. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to take a minute to give a shout out to our sponsor. If you're building in the blockchain space, then I want you to know about a company called Blockset. I've been speaking with their team closely, and I have no doubt that they are going to enable the next wave of developers and business leaders to build amazing applications. Blockset offers accessible data from all the major chains through easy to use API. It acts as your hosted blockchain infrastructure. It ultimately enables high quality apps to be built at a fraction of the cost at a fraction of the time. Go sign up for a free account at blockset.com and start building today. Stay tuned for more information later in the episode. Some housekeeping before we get started. I really enjoy chatting with our guest, Rich Rosenblum, co-founder of GSR, a crypto trading firm. Rich is a former oil trader, and we touched on some interesting points about market dynamics in oil and crypto, but this episode was recorded prior to oil historically falling below zero. We wanted to publish this a little bit closer to the happening, but I think it will be interesting context given what we've seen recently in oil markets. I hope you enjoy the episode. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special episode of The Scoop with Richard Rosenblum, not Blum, like a flower blooming, as he puts it. He's the co-founder of GSR Trading. They are a liquidity provider and trading shop in the crypto options and derivatives market. It's a corner of the market that, if you've kept up with our coverage, saw breakneck growth throughout 2019 with new players coming on board, new exchanges, new trading operations coming into the space. But since the coronavirus-linked health and financial crisis has gripped all asset classes, we've seen it come under a bit of pressure. And Rich is really in the thick of it all. So we're excited to have him on. Rich, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Frank. No, it's it's really my pleasure. We've gone back and forth on the telegrams uh, too frequently, so it's great to sort of have you on the show to talk about your expertise. So I hit you up, I guess it was a few days ago, about this piece I was working on about volumes compressing in the derivatives space, in the crypto options space. Traders and market makers were telling me about how we saw obviously a widening of spreads. We've seen some participants retreat from the market. Give us a quick overview about what the state of, I guess we'll start with crypto options is right now. We're recording on April 15th, 2020. Sure. I think it could help to you know give you a bit of a background before we jump into it on GSR to help frame up the, the conversation. You know, Having started in 2013, we're very much um, a crypto native institution. And we got started using software to trade, you know, programmatic liquidity provision, largely for, for tokens. But then a couple of years later, this is still before Ethereum, before Tether even got started. You know, we were already making markets for issuers as well as exchanges. But then in the, the past two years, we've realized that there's a void in the market for risk management services. So even though that's a bit more of a barbell approach since focused on the you know, the milliseconds, the microstructure, is something we've done you know, for prior six years. The last couple, we've continued that approach 
servicing issuers, but realize that it's the miners that need some help facilitating force management. And we've built out a framework for the collateral and margining of OTC flows that are bilateral. So there's a lingering risk component. And I think that that's a a helpful segue into your, your question in that when there's crypto native institutions, we're fully focused on the space. And so when the market gets more volatile, there's a lot more to do. The phone's ringing off the hook. We're working nights and weekends versus the groups that aren't dedicated to this space. And they're just trading once in a while on, on CME. And it's basically an, an ancillary product and they're a macro hedge fund. And they focus on commodities. They focus on FX. They focus on equities. This isn't the full entree for them. It's more of a side dish. So when they're suddenly very full from their own entrees in the equity market uh, crashing, effects going crazy, they're no longer focused on crypto. I think that's why we saw the initial fast drop on March 12th and 13th. If your focus is on other parts of traditional finance and crypto is more of an afterthought, if you need liquidity because you need to make margin calls, you need liquidity because you have redemptions coming at the end of the quarter from your investors due to the, the losses, you want to sell the in order of liquidity. And there's good transparency and liquidity in crypto. So some of those players getting out ended up causing that drop. But then we've only seen really buying from the point the market traded 4,000 in Bitcoin, including you know from the miners. And um, there's certainly been a focus on risk management. And there's been more interest to trade volatility. But I think it's not been on the same venues that the less dedicated players had been focused on. To what degree does the fact that since we bottomed out under 4,000 uh, in the middle of March, the fact that the people coming in are, are mostly buying, is that the force behind the buildup of liquidity that we've seen? I think that um, part is that there's been a dislocation in the market. If fundamental value um, would state that the, the market should be closer to where it was trading in January or February, traders that are used to thinking that that's still closer to the real value are willing to buy when the market drops. They'll buy on weakness. I think we've seen, you know, for the past two years, whales aren't getting out of the market. They're increasing the amount of Bitcoin they're holding in their wallets. So I think the drop has just been that they think that there's good value at um, 9,000. There's even better value at 5,000 and even better at 4,000. So they've added on the way down. Another thing is that there's a catalyst on the way. People have focused on just having um, for not months, but, but years, and now it's only a couple weeks away. And so I think that's an event where fundamentally it doesn't have any impact until the event takes place. But when it comes to market flows and positioning, people will want to buy ahead of the halving. So I think that's part of why the, the market was positioned a bit long going into the March sell-off. Then even though they got washed out of levered positions, they jump right back in because they have faith that the market's going to rebound, even if it takes, you know, a couple months. Well, that kind of raises the almost omnipresent question of, is this event, which according to a rival cryptocurrency news site that has a countdown clock, I won't name the site, but we're 26 days away from the happening event. Is it priced in? I think that in an efficient market, usually news to some degree is going to be priced in. I think we we still have a bit of a disjointed market in crypto and in the middle of a unique event with the pandemic. I think it's not fully priced in. I think probably a bit too cheap. Don't like the usually 
give forecasts for the market. We tend to be less directional in nature and more, more mm -hmm. quantitative in our trading. But I think in this case, I do see more upside given the fact that we were so much higher a couple of months ago and the amount of selling each day from their mining rewards is going to drop in half. I think there's more upside probability in the next few months than downside. And it's, it's interesting. I want to go back to the point you made about miners and how they can hedge their risk going into this event with more bespoke trading products rather than just vanilla options on a CME or other types of derivative exchanges. Walk us through how these products are structured and what is the gap between what exists out there in the market right now and what some of these miners need? That's a great question. In terms of what exists, the market is very small, not only in terms of the, the notionals, but also on a relative basis to the linear markets. There's a healthy amount of, of futures trading, of spot trading in Bitcoin and some of the other top tokens, but the relative amount of options is small. When you look at traditional markets, you know options can be up to half or more of the total trading and open interest, but in crypto, it's still in the single digits. So there's a lot of room for growth in the derivatives and options space, even if there's, there's not growth in the general space. But we think there's going to be a lot of growth in the space as well as some catch up on the option side. So what's available now is vanilla options puts and calls. And you could create your own strategies, a call spread, put spread, fence. Mm -hmm. But what's traded on screen is uh, you know, vanilla options. But in terms of what's available, once you use an intermediary like a GSR, you know, we can offer various different products that we're bridging over from the traditional financial landscape, such as uh, you know, extendables or accumulators, variant swaps. We're not reinventing anything. We're just bringing it over from the traditional space. There's other products that we're working on that I think are more unique to crypto, uh, hash rate derivatives, uh, difficulty swaps, staking derivatives. And given that these are products that we're going to offer to a, a broader marketplace, there's only so much risk capital GSR has. So we're working to productize these markets with other partners so that mm -hmm. it'll be um, very useful to the community for years to come. And I think hash rate derivatives is the most uh, seminal in that if you're a miner, there's a whole host of different risk exposures that you have, including you know energy prices, the use costs for your, your land, you have to buy on the, the cost of the technology, you have to constantly be replacing the machines. But another one, in addition to the price of Bitcoin, is the difficulty that you're facing, which is based on the number of other competing miners in the ecosystem. So if a miner has the ability not only to hedge by selling forward Bitcoin prices, but to sell the actual hash rate or to buy uh, difficulty, then that uh, goes a much longer way to reduce their proxy risk and hedging takes away their more explicit exposure. So there's a large interest to sell house rate outright or to buy difficulty, but it's going to be still some time to properly productize the market. You mentioned before we turned on the mics that large miners in China specifically need a firm like GSR sitting between them to provide the risk that is more adjusted to their risk needs instead of, you know, bullet expiry options. They want something more. Um, you mentioned some of those products that you guys have rolled out to address those needs. So what are sales looking like? I mean, are they sort of coming on in now? When did they start to sort of 
look for these new products? What's demand been like? I'd say the interest level has been high, but it's been more of a handholding and, and learning process. Um, you know, we are trading, but my comparison isn't um, necessarily based on you know other other firms. It's going to be based on you know, also my prior history. I was managing the oil derivatives business at Goldman Sachs prior to GSR. And the main flow in commodities each year would be the country of Magic Mexico hedging their yearly oil flows by buying bespoke put options on roughly $20 billion of, uh, of risk. And you know, in the headlines this week, we see that Mexico is in a unique negotiating position with the US, Russia, and Saudi Arabia because they still have that hedge on. So it's very clear to us at GSR that these hedges can be quite powerful. And we've been explaining it to the marketplace, especially the mining community, as well as the issuers. Since many of them just sat on ETH when it was $1,000, ran it down to $100, and then started getting more serious about hedging. So I think that um, you know, it's been several years that we've been advocating the benefits of having a, you know, a smart risk management and hedging framework. You know, in terms of demand, we're, we're very much in a period of learning and building. And I think that as we've seen, educate a counterpart help them really understand their exposures. And then eventually they come around to want to hedge with us. And in terms of whether we call it intermediary or just bilateral trading, and we can use the exchanges for liquidity. I've been in the prior marketplace. If the country of Mexico wants to go trade, they're not going to go trade on the, the CME, bullet expiry futures. They're going to trade a more bespoke product, average rate swaps, um, average rate options. So in, in the same way, you know, we can provide these, these average rate options, which are more aligned with the balance sheets and liabilities of the, the miners or issuers. And it just makes it a bit more simple since the service would provide are a bit more high touch and personal than an exchange would have. We have hundreds of customers that we're interacting with on a weekly basis, not tens of thousands. It would be difficult for an exchange to go out and explain these products in the same way we can and come up with a, you know, a custom best fit for um, one of the clients. I think your background in oil is an interesting juxtaposition for this conversation. There is so much risk and uncertainty around, you know, production and supply and geopolitics that make those markets so interesting to follow. But I guess my question is, and I think it might be interesting for some of the listeners who may not be as privy to this as, as you are, but the thing about this Bitcoin halving event that's so interesting to me and the mining market as a whole is the fact that you have this event where you know exactly how much your supply is going to cut in half. You may not have certainty around energy use, but you know for a fact that it's going to go from X to Y. Whereas in oil, you never really have that certainty, right? You see these different shocks in supply and demand. So in a sense, it's weird to me that, or rather to me, it seems like it would be easier for a miner to sort of, you know, do that risk analysis and prepare ahead of an event like this rather than someone holding or maintaining tons and tons of oil? Or is that sort of, is that not a nuanced enough way of looking at it? I, I think nuance is the right word. Um, I have a multi-page document comparing the, the two markets and uh, I want to do it disservice by trying to go over it too quickly on, on this call. But I, I would say there's some fundamental differences in, you know, supply and demand. And, you know, in oil, the price does the work. If the price goes up, you're going to bring in more supply and you're going to destroy some demand. When price comes down, there's going to be 
you know, some destruction of production and you're going to stimulate more demand versus in crypto. It's a completely different framework. When prices go up, it doesn't have an impact on supply because supply is fixed according to a formula. The mining reward is exactly the same and then it cups in half every four years. Demand, it's not as uh, elastic to price because we still have very much a retail framework. I think you've heard the term, you know, past performance is not indicative of future performance, especially for warnings to you know, credit investors and in equities. But when it comes to the mindset as a trader, especially the retail mindset, when the market's going up, there's a pattern. People think the pattern's going to continue. So if Bitcoin prices touch 21,000, I think you're going to see more buying instead of selling because it's a new technology and that's proof that it's working. So fundamentally, people see that there's a reason why that pattern would be a proving factor and make them want to increase their positions or jump in for the first time versus let's say we did get down to 2000 back in March instead of rebounding. People would see that as proof that the market really wasn't um, resilient. It's not like gold. It's not a safe haven. And maybe it wasn't ever worth anything. It was just a bubble. So I think from the demand side, it's a bit more correlated positively to price, which is the opposite of oil. So markets are, are quite different. And I think another element is that oil is a consumptive good. When it comes out of the ground, it's not that fun to have around versus with Bitcoin. You're not storing it necessarily for future use to get rid of it. Some will get lost and stuck in wallets. You can't mm -hmm. bathe in your Bitcoin. Some of us would like to, but it's still still not possible. There's needs more lever, layer four solutions for that. Yeah, exactly. Um, jokes aside, you know the oil producers, even though some are are sitting on very large fields and assets, and and that's their their country's wealth. The miners, um, a lot of them Asia, they're creating Bitcoin for the sake of holding more Bitcoin. They're not even looking to sell it at all. Some that are forced to sell, they're selling because they use their Bitcoin to collateralize a dollar loan to buy more mining farms. And when the market drops, they're forced to sell a bit. Some are forced to sell because they need to pay salaries. So they're selling little bits of what they've accumulated to keep the mining operations going. But their goal is, you know, I want to have 10,000 Bitcoin. I want to have 100,000 Bitcoin. Yeah, so it's, it's a very different ethos than oil companies who, you know, they want to have higher production, but the production is to be sold. It's not to, to hold on to. So in that light, it's a little bit more like gold in that, you know, all the gold that's ever been mined in the world would fit into one Olympic sized swimming pool. Um, but I think that, you know, how is it different today versus when gold was, was popular, um, you know, using the coins hundreds of years ago? I think that, um, so long as we do have internet, it's a bit easier to transmit Bitcoin around and have it be peer to peer versus gold. Yeah, the coins might work. But very few people are going to you know, have the coins. So you're going to need a gold testing kit at that point if you're going to transact in the coins. So I think that it's more of a, a macro instrument and something that older generations are still clinging onto versus from a demographic perspective. I think people you know, under the age of 40, especially under their age of 30, you know, are going to have a lot more belief in the future market for digital commodities and Bitcoin to digital gold as opposed to normal gold. There's definitely a lot to unpack there. I can see how you could write a multi-page deep dive on this as you were alluding to. But I guess the, the basic thing to wrap our heads around is although there's this certainty around going from 12.5 to 6.25, there isn't certainty around what the price will be. And that's what we're hedging for. 
at the end of the day, because if it goes lower than a certain threshold, and I'm sure you've crunched the numbers on this, you guys are, are looking at this closely. At that point, miners are going to be unprofitable. And if it goes beyond a certain threshold, they're going to be making money hand over fist and the couple overfloweth. Um, have you looked at those thresholds and what's the sense of where price needs to be for miners to, you know, not be shitting their pants? Sure. So I think you, you have a, a curve in which the lowest cost producers, they're going to be profitable today, even in the, the low 3000s, high 2000s. So when it, it doubles, the mining river cuts in half, you know, those numbers are going to be 5,000, 6,000. But that's only a small amount of the mining community. There's others that are only profitable at 8,000, and they're already running at a loss and having to get rid of their machines. But it's very much a, a moving target in that as time passes, even with the same price of crypto and no halving, the difficulty tends to move up and to the right. And there tends to be just newer and better equipment and software for mining. So it's a lot like a shale business in oil where you have a field, it only has about a year and a half capacity and its depletion rates are high. And you've got to keep investing in that, that field, but also look to buy new fields and new equipment. Otherwise, you're going to go out of business. So there's no miner that just bought a subset of uh, equipment and focused on that set. If you've been around for years, you have to continually be you know, upping the ante and, and reinvesting. And adjusting your, your strategy um, as mm -hmm. things change. And in terms of um, why it's a moving target, when price goes up, there's going to be more people mining. So there are scenarios where Bitcoin at 20,000 will be less profitable for the miners than Bitcoin at 2,000. Because let's say this pa That's pandemic, God forbid, ends up a lot worse than people were ever going to expect, and no one can get to the mines. It could get the back to that day where Frank Jabaro on his, on his laptop could be mining very profitably again if all the other miners shut off because... The, the difficulty rating is purely based on how many other miners there are on the network. So in a market where Bitcoin is dropping, you know, to a dollar, but you're collecting every one of those dollars, you know, it's going to be very profitable for you versus if Bitcoin's trading $20,000 and you're only a very small part of the, the network, you might not make as much. But generally, it's more profitable as the market rallies, especially if these rallies are happening in an explosive way. If you look back four years ago, the market's going to rally 10x. There's more than enough pie for everyone to have, even if you have a small slice. If you're a listener of The Scoop or follow the block, then you know I am super excited about the future of crypto adoption, especially on the enterprise side. Our sponsor, Blockset, is not only helping to push development at the grassroots level with their multi-chain API, but also at the institutional level. Blockset is built by BRD, the first crypto wallet in the App Store from 2014, and one of the largest in the space today. They've taken the architecture and the knowledge they've gained over the past six years to create Blockset, a robust, reliable, and strategic B2B offering for developers and enterprises. Blockset is enabling banks and other major financial institutions to interface and build with crypto assets at light speed. See just how simple it is by visiting blockset.com and sign up for a free account today. There are all these different uncertainties that hang over the space. 
that are crypto specific, but we also have this crisis, this health crisis, and we don't know exactly when things will completely return to normal, whether we'll see more shutdowns. Um, when we look at the hash rate, we did see a 30% drop from, I think if we look back at the chart we have from uh, my colleagues, Larry Cermax Research in Bitcoin hash rate, we, we saw a really precipitous drop in March. But it's not clear if that was necessarily tied right to to those lockdowns. I'd be curious, Rich, to kind of dissect what is tied to coronavirus, what could be later tied to coronavirus in terms of that hash rate? I think that it's it's a complex system, so it's hard to really put a finger on it definitively. But um, from speaking to the miners directly in the province um, where the mining was happening, I think that the quarantines were already ending mid-March because uh, China got it a little bit earlier than the rest of the world. So if you look at the period from February 3rd to February 15th, Bitcoin rallied from 9,300 to, to 10,300. And over that period, I think it was potentially speculative flows coming into the market ahead of the, the halving. And maybe some you know, Chinese nationals continuing to, to buy from home, whereas their mining farms were, were temporarily not acting at full capacity due to the quarantine. There's a bit of a disconnect there more than usual where hash rate was dropping, even though Bitcoin was rallying. It's hard to be definitive in the exact differences because there's other elements. There's the fact that when price moves, people are turning on or off the machines. And also it could be that someone who bought their new S9s uh, a year ago is finally taking them in and able to use them. And that could impact it. Or someone who had some old equipment and they're finally taking it offline or just moving it um, impact the system. So I would say that we could tell that there was a, a bit of a reduction and we, we think that it was people not able to service their minds while they're in quarantine, but it wasn't a, a huge, huge impact yet. And then I think that um, yeah, as there's been more of a full global quarantine and China's getting out of the woods, there's been different impacts, but it's harder to, to know how much of that was due to the price drop versus due to a change in difficulty due to people not able to, to service their equipment. It's a good segue into a question that I'm asking a lot of the traders who come on the show. I think it's super fascinating and I think it'll be something when we look back on this crisis, it'll be at the heart, I think, of what we talk about. Um, the fact that we're all working from home, the fact that trading floors have been kind of separated and many exchanges have either shut down their pits or trading floors and you have traders working from their basement dealing with Wi-Fi and latency issues. There's been a ton of reporting around that. I'd be interested to know what your guys' experience has been like being not in the places where you typically work. Um, does it impact your ability to maybe respond to a trade or does it impact your latency? Obviously, there's this whole psychological element of isolation and, and loneliness. Um, what's the experience been like? Yeah, you we've know, gotten this question in a couple different ways over the past, especially the past month. And I think that it's made me more bullish on, on our space because the main impediments we've had to doing business have been a result of traditional financial issues. For instance, there's a, a group in Astra that's responsible for some of the, the wiring and payment processing. And due to security issues and delays they've been having, there's been some issues for the cryptocurrency market not being able to get payments out as quickly and having some uncertainty on timing. And when you look at traditional financial institutions, you know, looking for bailouts and 
being stuck working on all the issues with the pandemic, having a decentralized framework where Bitcoin, Ethereum, XRP, they haven't been down. We haven't experienced any delays. Everything's working flawlessly. So I think that on a relative basis, even though there's been you know, some volatility in crypto, and I think you know people have been certainly disrupted and in a different type of work environment, being home with their families instead of at an office, I think on a, on a relative basis, things have been very stable and we've been able to have contingency planning to continue operating 24-7, still servicing you know, counterparts across different regions, including you know, the weekends. And so I think it's been a you know, positive signal that despite this historic uh, event, one of the worst financial calamities in, in modern history, it's been surprisingly business as usual. Yeah. Well, I think that crypto traders are a bit better positioned for an event like this. And as much as so many of the different trading operations are, first off, they're lean, they're distributed across various countries, right? I know you guys are smattered around the globe. And then there's that element of operating 24-7. So you kind of need to be ready for anything that'll come your way at all hours of the day. I kind of want to stick to this just for a, a few moments longer. You talk about how everything's been business as usual, but there has to have been something, you know, aside from maybe uh, Wi-Fi um, getting in the way of a, of a good Zoom call. Um, <laughs> has there been anything even that you're noticing out in the market that's been striking? You know, I'm not asking you to name names here. On this show, we do not gossip, but maybe we can... Um, Talk a little bit about what's going on out there in the world. Sure. I think that um, one is that there's been some growth in the derivative space and there's a long way to, way to go. And another space where I think that in the past year, there's been some growth, but there's a, a strong curve to work our way up is in the, the domain of credit. And we've seen some sensationalist articles from the media about how there's a credit bubble in crypto. But when you think about the rates that have been paid, you know, call it 10 to teens percents for 65% LTV type loans on Bitcoin. That means that when you're borrowing, even though you're getting US dollars, to get $10 million, you'd have to give $15 million worth of Bitcoin. So it's, I could think about it more as the borrower is actually the lender. And so having it be that to pay 10% or more for that privilege to give someone more than you're getting back of something that's completely liquid, it seems like there's a, an inefficient market there. And there's been too much money paid to the lenders. But one thing that's been disruptive is the event in March, even though you mitigate the credit by having this, uh, this buffer by over collateralizing, when you can have a 40% move in one day, you can see how some credit risk does come into play. And some of the top players have come out publicly and said they're not doing any lending or they're not taking any credit risk. I'm not sure which of the two the intention has been with some of these public statements. But I think that the increased volatility has been disruptive from, from different businesses because whether it's OTC derivatives or, or, or lending, there's always a credit component. And in normal market scenarios, these things um, work themselves out, especially if there's a good understanding between counterparts. There's a margin call. If someone's uh, sick or at, at home, not able to deal with it as quickly, you can, can work it out. But if the market's going to move down 40% or down 70% within a couple of days, it might be a bit more disruptive to some of these relationships. And I think that um, it's hard to pinpoint any one story, but I think that 
the volatility. It's one thing about traders in a, a leverage scenario, um, making or losing money on a speculative basis. But when people are using these contracts um, for lending or for risk management, I think that the the high volatility coupled with people not um, at their home base where they should be trading or performing their responsibilities does make things a bit more challenged. That, and I also say that um, I haven't used the term schmattered, but um, we are very decentralized. Um, have people, I think, ten different cities around the globe, and have um, cross currency trades as well, trading cryptos um, in in other non US or non European currencies. And there's countries that have just closed off their financial system, and we were left with currency risk that we we couldn't even trade. We didn't even know where the price was. So I'd say that again, you know, there's been some issues that have been caused some instability in the business environment in crypto, but more of them have been coming at us from the traditional financial landscape. I think that it's been a story of resilience from the digital asset space. It's interesting. Um, you mentioned the the looming credit bubble, Lehman Brother blow up that Bloomberg News has put in the minds of of many people in the space. I think the argument around that is simply tied to just how quickly the credit market has grown. But at the end of the day, this market does grow really quickly. Everything kind of sprouts out. You had one derivatives exchange one day, and then two weeks later, you have what seems like dozens and dozens, right? It's just that's how fast we move. Um, but yes, we have seen some folks pull back um, in addition to market makers maybe pulling back. Yes, Genesis has, at least for the month of March, they decided not to extend credit as as we first reported after he um, joined us on this same show. I guess we could go into that line of questioning, um, whether or not we talk about a credit bubble and you kind of alluded to the collateral you need to put up to, to get that. Um, but is there maybe not even ample uh, enough credit in this market? Yeah, I, th- I think that um, often the, the terms can be confused. And I think that is there any credit being given out on an outright basis? There's very few institutions that are doing uncollateralized loans. So on a ranking of how much credit risk you're taking, once you're over collateralizing a loan deal, it's much safer. And you think about the biggest collateralized loan market out there, the mortgage market. You wouldn't necessarily give someone, whether it's a hundred thousand or a million, unless there was a, a house that's worth you know three hundred thousand or, or three million. So in the same way, whether it's a, a miner, an individual tapping a, a lender like Genesis you mentioned, or decentralized um, platform like like Compound or MakerDAO, there's less credit when it's over collateralized. And I do think there's there's not enough credit in the industry, but part of that is because it's just so nascent and so volatile. If you were going to try to understand someone's balance sheet enough to give them an uncollateralized loan, you know that would be a lot of due diligence. By the time you finish the due diligence, the market's already already changed. So I think that the only groups that are going to be able to to give these uncollateralized loans are going to be the ones that have an intimate knowledge of the the counterpart's balance sheet, and even then, they're going to be high rates because if it's could be up to ten percent when it's over collateralized, if there's no collateral. They'd want, you know, in the in the twenties or, or higher, but as the space matures, then you're going to have, you know, better known credits. It's going to take, you know, more than a few years until we have CDS trading on the crypto companies, and that's that's how you know 
in traditional finance that whether it's a oil company, uh, airline, other type of manufacturer, you could see where the, the credit default swaps are trading and price in the probability of default and use that credit value adjustment in pricing of a, of a derivative or a loan. But we're obviously many years away from that in crypto since the market is, is rapidly changing and has some growing up to do and maturing. Yeah, no, it'd be interesting to see the day when we have um, credit default swaps in the crypto market. So you think we're <laughs> several years out from that. What do they used to call those things? What was the nickname for them? The, um, were they called atomic bombs? What, what was the... <laughs> Maybe that CD, CDOs are, are, are similar. Oh, is I that, think the is that CDOs? swaps yeah. could be a bit friendlier, but I think along the same veins, the oil market and uh, you know the Americas is very much was driven by you know the banks lending to these oil producers but coercing them to to hedge with them as well and the hedges would help make the oil companies a better credit and particularly i think it's similar with the the miners since it's not only volatile as we've seen especially this week as it, as it is in oil but it's also a cyclical market so if someone does everything exactly right they can't time the the bull and bear markets perfectly so they're probably going to need to have uh, you know, revolving credit facilities and find some ways to, to tap credit markets when the surprises happen. So the ability to be a, you know, a strong producer, unless you're Saudi Arabia, you're going to need to borrow. And if you have some hedges on, whether it's uh, you know, bought and bought puts versus sold calls or you've sold some swaps, those hedges are going to make, whether it's an oil producer or a Bitcoin producer, a better credit. And it's going to be easier to whether it's get a higher LTV or just a lower rate for the borrower. So we haven't been focused on, on lending specifically. You know, it's a future business line we've been focused on. But in terms of the derivative space, you know, we've, we've helped some of the other groups that do do lending advantage their business by securing the loans via hedges. Well, there's our scoop for the episode, uh, eyeing at least, thinking about possibly doing lending. Um, I feel like we could have a three hour long conversation. I could just keep asking you questions because you are so knowledgeable about all of these topics, but I'm getting yelled at by my team a lot of the time about how long these things are. And they complain that I spend too much time podcasting and not enough time writing. They think this is easy though. They think this is a lot easier than it is. Anyway, Without without um, complaining too you much, make it sound easy. What can I say? Hey, th- that's the glass half full way of of thinking about it. Um, I've been in the past few weeks. I've been examining um, the makeup of different market participants. I mean, you were you guys were around 2016, 2017, and this notion of when institutions was at the forefront. And honestly, you know, as you know, the the makeup really pretty much looks the same when we think about people who are engaging with this market, family offices, you know, crypto native hedge funds for the most part, maybe some smaller hedge funds, the bulge bracket banks, which, you know, when we think about crypto derivatives, it's so funny to me um, now when we were writing about them in 2017, it was, oh, Goldman's going to come out with their NDF and Citigroup is working on their own version of a digital asset receipt. That's kind of like how we trade foreign stocks in the U.S., and um, that's obviously when uh, CME's futures came online, and now they're sort of dwarfed by almost every perpetual swap um, provider <laughs> out there. Um, but but we've seen a lot change, and we've seen the participants 
change in some respects. In your view, what is it going to take? Actually, I'll frame the question differently. Why do you think you came from Goldman? Why didn't that product succeed? And CME has seen relative success, but nothing compared to what we see with the likes of FTX or Binance, et cetera. Why did Wall Street fail to launch, whereas we've seen breakneck growth, at least in 2019, among firms that are in Asia? Sure. So I'll answer that point directly, I think, with just one tidbit that usually Wall Street or institutions, what have you, are operating off of an existing legal framework. When they launch new products, they launch them on the basis that they have legal precedent. They've engaged with the regulators and they don't move forward until they have full clarity. Crypto markets, they, they got launched 11 years ago without any clarity and they've only gotten into focus in the, in the past few years. So due to the fact that it's emerged as a retail marketplace, you haven't had these precedents for you know, traditional institutions to, to enter with confidence. And not only that, there's been some ire from whether it's Warren Buffett or others saying that it's a, a problematic or bubblish type environment and it's not you know, worthy of seriousness. But I'd say uh, to further the point of when are institutions coming, I think that a quick answer in saying, oh, they're already here is partially correct that not only do we have uh, fidelity deeply involved in investing and, and touching the crypto, but we have um, backed Kelly Loeffler, regardless of the success uh, today of that institution, they're certainly invested. And the fact that she ended up being a, a U.S. senator speaks to the quality of people that are involved in this space. But in terms of um, saying that the few institutions that are involved in a traditional sense, I think that Coinbase has become uh, a flawed institution. Um, same goes with Binance, same goes with BitMEX. Even if these groups have had their issues um, on, the, on the regulatory side, I think that when their valuations are you know, potentially into the 10 plus billion level each, and they have bona fide businesses with hundreds of, of people and they're, they're making investments um, where they're buying groups out uh, in the hundreds of millions, there would be uh, you know, institutions in most people's eyes. And it might be that it's uncertain when traditional financial institutions are going to enter. They're having to look at their own homes and clean up with the, the pandemic now. And we might stay a bit more bifurcated. I think you know GSR is an institution and we're filling the, the role that I think banks would be filling in normal circumstances. And we might have thought that two years ago, there would already be more banks um, you know, sort of t taking market share and what we're focused on. But now, uh, yeah, it doesn't seem like we're any closer to that happening today than we were two years ago. But I do think that there's some value that tokenizing, um, whether it's a security or, or an asset, can bring. And even if so far it's looked more of like angel investing, where a lot of the ICO projects should go to zero, since that's just the nature of how angel and VC investing works, there's certainly uh, more than a handful that will be successful, strong businesses and not only impact crypto, but impact traditional finance the same way you know, Ether's been rallying this year largely off of the, the use of potentially as a settlement layer in traditional assets. Ether's one of the, the best performing assets uh, globally this year. So I think that the market's un uncertain even without the, the pandemic. It might be more than two years, might be, be five or ten 
But I do think markets tend to you know, surprise us how little happens in two years, but shock us how much change can happen in 10. And I think the writing is on the wall that uh, you know, even if crypto isn't getting as much regulatory clarity or respect from the traditional institutions, I think it's, uh, it's happening in, in due time. And these changes are going to take place at some point. Yeah, I mean, I am definitely, I think I'm in a constant state of shock just all of the time reporting on this market. I think that's an excellent place to leave off, Rich. I appreciate you coming on the show. and We have to have you back soon. There's just so much to talk about. We'll have to do a post-having um, autopsy. Um, well, if it's <laughs> negative, it would be an autopsy. But review of, of what happens and uh, bring you on to sort of talk about what you're seeing. Rich of GSR, the co-founder, a trading shop that is at the center of it all. Rich Rosenblum, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Frank. This podcast is about pushing awareness and inspiring growth in the crypto industry. I can't reiterate enough that if you're a business owner, executive, or active developer in the space, I highly suggest checking out Blockset. Blockset provides a robust, unified API that provides easy access to multi-chain data. Skip the tedious data normalization process and start building immediately at a fraction of the cost. It's live now and it's on their site for you to explore. Go sign up for a free account at blockset.com and start building today.